following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 18, The Blessings of Separation. Our text, 2 Corinthians 6, 17 through 7, verse 1. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18, and chapter 7, verse 1. For our visiting friends, we're pursuing a series of studies in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians entitled, God's Call to Church Action. And last week, we commenced a message entitled, The Life of Separation. We're concluding that message this morning with the blessings of separation. Last Lord's Day, we saw something of the divine motivation for a life of separation. We saw that this is the quality of life which produces an enlargement of heart. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to satanic suggestion, a life of separation doesn't narrow us in the wrong sense of that word. It enlarges us. Not only does it bring the enlargement of heart, but the discernment of mind. Show me a man who walks with God. Show me a woman who walks the separated path. And I'll show you a person whose mind is one of discernment, whose insight is deep, who is able to interpret the affairs of the world and apply the balm and the cure. The motivations for separation. Then we went on to our second point and we studied the divine prohibitions for a life of separation. There were two. First, the refusal of unholy associations. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Here is a statement that doesn't even need exposition. Here is a statement which only needs application. And we saw five reasons why no Christian who calls himself a Christian, no Christian who calls himself a true believer, can ever compromise with evil. There's a standard to uphold. What fellowship hath righteousness with lawlessness? There is a conscience to respect. What communion hath light with darkness? There is a witness to maintain. What fellowship hath an unbeliever with an infidel? There is a master to obey. What concord hath Christ with Belial? There is a purpose to fulfill. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Five reasons why there can be no compromise with evil. Our second prohibition was the removal from unholy contaminations. And you remember the verse? Be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And we observed that this in terms of practical experience sometimes means the avoidance of. Sometimes it means the avoidance of. Sometimes the withdrawal from. Persons, places, or even positions. If the Christian is going to live the separated life. For we are in a situation today which is contaminated by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. This morning we continue with our subject, but from a positive point of view, and notice two more points. The first, the divine compensations for a life of separation, and then secondly, the divine regulations 
for a life of separation. So with that introduction, let us give ourselves, first of all, to the divine compensations for a life of separation. Look at verses 17 and 18. I will receive you and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now these are glorious words and have a wealth of meaning for the Christian who desires all that God has purposed for them that love him. There are compensations for a separated life and they're comprehended in two concepts which the Apostle Paul outlines here. One is fellowship with God or the fellowship of God. And the second is the fatherhood of God. First of all, the fellowship of God. I will receive you, saith the Lord God Almighty. The devil will tempt you to think that separation is virtually isolation. But nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact of the matter is that fellowship with God is based on a life of separation. It is not isolation, but fellowship to live a separated life. The prophet Amos, you remember, asks the question, chapter 3 and verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? When we follow God's prohibitions, he says to us, I will receive you. Lay hold of that word receive for a moment. I will receive you. The original has the whole idea of the favor of God or the fellowship of God. I will receive you. We've observed already that when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. So we see that the Christian life is not a barren renunciation but rather a pathway that leads to friendship with God in the blessed company of all his faithful people. Certainly there is nothing we should covet more in all this life and that which is to come than fellowship with God. My Christian friend, my young friend here this morning, has it ever occurred to you that it's for this purpose that God ever created man? Has it ever occurred to you that in the councils of eternity, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided to make man, it was in order that he might fellowship with man. It was in the cool of the garden that God walked with Adam. Only sin interrupted that fellowship. When God called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees, it was to walk with him. The symbol of that man's life was a tent to indicate pilgrimage and an altar to indicate fellowship. When God called a nation out of Egypt, it was to fellowship with them. When the Son of God laid his life down in death, it was because he loved the church and gave himself for it that he might have fellowship with the church. And my friend, if you want to know fellowship with God, you must know separation of life. But more than fellowship with God, there is the fatherhood of God. I will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The fellowship of God is only matched by the fatherhood of God. Now this is a doctrine that's very little understood today. Simply because we've been told that God is the father of all men, irrespective of what the scriptures teach. Let me point out very clearly and very, very severely too that God is only the father of those who are in Jesus Christ who have received Christ and become the children of God. 
God is only the father of those who've had the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. God is the only father of those who have the Holy Spirit within them witnessing that they are the children of God and therefore crying, Abba, Father. But having made that statement, I want to add, it's possible for a person to call God Father and to know that fatherhood-sonhood relationship and yet not to know the fullness of the blessing of the fatherhood of God. Look at the scripture with me. I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. To study the Old Testament references from which Paul quotes these words is to discover that our heavenly father is more than just a heavenly father in name. He is a father of promise. He is a father of provision. He is a father of protection. Look at this for a moment. The Lord Jesus interpreted this aspect of the character of God when he assured his disciples of all that the Father of God and the fatherhood of God really meant. Notice, as Father, he has a promise for his children. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he shall give you the promise, even power from on high. I will send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The promise of the Father is the Holy Ghost. Needless to say, in that word, power from on high is wrapped up every other promise in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. You long to know power in your life, my friend? You can never know this divine dynamic until you know the full blessing of the fatherhood of God. Let us never forget the words of our Savior who said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? But no one can come to God with holy boldness and request the fulfillment of this promise unless he knows separation from sin and dedication to God. You say, why? Because God gives the Holy Spirit only to them who obey. Don't suppose there's anything more needed in the world at this moment, in the church of Jesus Christ at this hour, than a mighty pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is essentially the age of the Spirit. And revival will never come except in the Holy Ghost. The fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ will never come save in the Holy Ghost. But has it ever occurred to you that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is dependent upon my enjoyment of the full meaning of the fatherhood of God? And has it ever occurred to you before this morning that unless I walk the way of fellowship with God and separation unto God, I shall never know the blessing of the fatherhood of God. But with the promise there is also the provision. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. And again, your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. If the Father's promise has to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit, then the Father's provision has to do with the gift of daily supply. Yes, your food, your clothes, your health, your future are all bound up with this provision of a heavenly Father. How wonderful to rest in the thought that our heavenly Father knows and feeds and that we've got nothing to worry about if we truly know him as Father. I long to know this intimacy, our fellowship, 
with God that brings me into the full blessing of the fatherhood of God. When I read stories concerning men like George Muller and others who are able to kneel before their heavenly father and as little children just to ask and to believe without equivocation or doubting that the heavenly father would answer from heaven his dwelling place. I long, I say, to know deeper meanings and depths of the fatherhood of God. The father's promise. The father's provision. Thirdly, the father's protection. Speaking of little children, the master said, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my father. Now it's significant to observe right in our passage here, verse 18, that the title given to our heavenly father is that of Lord Almighty. Apart from one other effort, Apart from one other reference in the book of the Revelation, this is the only occurrence of this title. It means all sovereign and is the equivalent of the Hebrew rendering of the Lord of hosts. As the omnipotent one, he is our protector and our guardian, both in time and throughout eternity. Speaking as the perfect man here upon earth, Jesus had confidence in his father as the all sovereign protector and guardian. You'll remember that when he rebuked Peter in the garden for chopping off the ear of Malchus, he went on to say, Thinkest thou not that I could pray my father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? To our master, the fatherhood of God represented the sureness of promise, the fullness of provision, the nearness of protection. So we see what is meant by the fatherhood of God. We can count upon him for promises to be fulfilled, for provision to be supplied, for protection to be assigned. These then are the blessings and compensations that come when I walk that pathway of separation unto God. Separation from sin, yes, that's the negative aspect, but separation unto God. And as I yield my life to my heavenly Father, I know his fellowship, I know his fatherhood, but I can't do that and God will not receive me until I know what it is to be separate from all that is unclean. Don't ever read these words. I will be unto you a father and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty, unless you also read, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. You'll never know the power of God. You'll never know the provision of God. You'll never know the protection of God in all its fullness until you know not only the motivations but the prohibitions of a life of holiness. These then are the compensations. And alas, alas, how little or nothing do people in the Christian church today know of the fatherhood of God, the privilege of being sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. So much then for the compensations for a life of separation. But now look with me at verse 1 of chapter 7. Here we have the divine regulations for a life of separation. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now with his characteristic thoroughness, Paul concludes his teaching on separation by revealing to his Corinthian readers what is in fact the secret of a separated life? 
It is one thing to have the motivations, another thing to have the prohibitions, and yet another thing to have the compensations. But the question arises as to how this doctrine can become personal and practical in everyday life. Now, to help us answer that question, the Apostle gives us two divine regulations for a separated life. Two divine regulations for a separated life. And this is the burden of my message this morning. Here is the first one. The purgation of filthiness in our lives. The purgation of filthiness in our lives. That word purgation is rooted in the word cleanse, as we have it in our text in the original Greek. The purgation of filthiness in our lives. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now a careful analysis of the context makes it very evident that Paul is being very specific in his use of this word filthiness. In fact, the term doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament but right here. In the Septuagint version of the Bible, that is of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23, 14 uses this word in connection with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. In an ancient manuscript known as the Maccabees, chapter 1 and verse 27, the same word is used in the ancient language of the pollution of idolatry. So two thoughts Paul has in mind. One, iniquity. The other, idolatry. Or if you prefer, one, impurity. The other, idolatry. Impurity refers to the filthiness of the flesh, while idolatry relates to the filthiness of the spirit. Both these concepts are rooted in the unholy associations and contaminations which are prohibited in a life of separation, as we saw in our previous study. Now, in simple language, filthiness is anything that soils or spoils our bodies and our souls. It is not a question whether a thing is conventional, but whether it's Christian. I want to repeat that. It's not a question whether a thing is conventional. Everybody's doing it. Everybody, all the kids at school, all the crowd in my group, all the men in the office, all the girls in the factory, all the college students in the university. It isn't a question whether it's conventional. It's a question whether it's Christian. And this is the issue. For Christians today, Christianity stands for all that is clean. Anything that defiles is unchristian and wrong. And what we must do is to cleanse ourselves from all such filthiness. In relation to our body, all filthiness ultimately results from the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. It will be found that they have their final source in these two attractions in the world in which we live. The lust of the eyes... The lust of the flesh. John describes them as the things that are in the world. My beloved friend, I want to tell you that if you want to walk with God, if you want to live that separated life of which we're speaking, all impurity has to go from your life. All filthiness of the flesh. Anything that soils or spoils your body or your soul. Anything that brings that sense of contamination and uncleanness and defilement must be cleansed, purgated. In relation to the spirit, all filthiness ultimately results from the pride of life. This is the sin for which Lucifer, son of the morning, was expelled from heaven and Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden. From this mother of all spiritual sins has come the hatred, the malice, the jealousy, the animosity, and all the other companion evils 
that we find in a defiled spirit. Now let me point this out. The Christian may be scrupulously careful about his outward behavior as touching impurity and yet be decidedly unchristian in his disposition. He may have a clean body as he thinks, but a filthy spirit. He may be able to list his string of sins from which he is now separated. I don't do this, I don't do the other, and I don't do the other, and yet have a foul temper, an unforgiving spirit, a proud heart. So Paul puts the two together and he says, we've got to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh, from the filthiness of the spirit. So perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now the secret of this purgation is summed up for us in these opening words of the verse. Will you notice? Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us purgate or cleanse ourselves. The promises, of course, relate to the indwelling life of God. Because if you look back to the end of chapter 6, you'll notice Paul has just said, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. The Apostle John puts it similarly when he says in another place in the New Testament, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope, the living Christ, the life of God, the indwelling hope, every man that hath this hope purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The final analysis of this entire matter is simply this, that the sanctifying life of God, mediated through our Savior, incarnated by the Spirit, is the secret of a holy life. The means of cleansing are all related to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the cleanser. The Bible teaches that the word of God, the blood of Christ, the spirit of life, the hope of glory, are all means of cleansing, but only as they're used by God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the promises by which we're to cleanse ourselves. When we read that text in that blessed epistle of John, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. What is John saying? He's telling us that in the laying down of the Savior's life, in the shedding of that precious blood, the provision was made for cleansing. First of all, in terms of justification and reconciliation. That's a judicial aspect. But that life which was laid down by the shedding of his blood, for the life is in the blood, was caught up again in resurrection. And Christ now by his spirit indwells us and his holy nature indwelling us by the power of the Holy Ghost constitutes the purgating, the cleansing power in a believer's life. And if you want to know what it is to live the holy life, my friend, it's as you trust that wonderful Lord in all the power of his resurrection life to live that life in you and through you, looking through your eyes so that you lust not with your eyes. Living through your life so that you lust not through your flesh. Living in your spirit so that you know not the pride of life. This word cleanse is an interesting one. It's in the perfect tense. 
Let us cleanse ourselves. Let's be done with it. Let's be done with it. No compromise. Here is a word which means an act, a decisive act, a cutting off of the offending arm, a cutting off of the offending foot, a plucking out of the offending eye. Let us cleanse ourselves. And will you notice it says, let us cleanse ourselves. And though we know we can't do it except by the power of the indwelling Christ, we've got to be willing to be done with sin. We've got to be willing to blow up the bridges. We've got to be willing to cut all connections with that which has contaminated and spoiled our lives in the past. We've got to cut it out. That is the purgation, a filthiness in our lives. But like always in Scripture, with the negative aspect, there is the positive. And our second regulation here is the promotion of holiness in our lives. The purgation a filthiness in our lives, now the promotion of holiness in our lives. For the text goes right on to say, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The Apostle Paul uses the present participle here in order to stress the fact that the condition of holiness is something which is progressive until we see our Savior face to face. Needless to say, there is a positional holiness which is ours the moment we're justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The moment, my dear friend, you knelt as a bankrupt sinner at the foot of the cross and cried out to God, have mercy upon my soul, and in repentance you turned to him and in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were accounted holy and sanctified that very moment. Positionally, that never changes. But what is true positionally must be also true experimentally. So with this positional holiness, there is a progressive holiness which comes through a life of daily yieldedness. In fact, the very word for holiness is an unusual one here. The word for holiness in this verse involves the idea of consecration or dedication. Thus we see that the New Testament separation demands not only the dethronement of sin in our lives, but the enthronement of God in our lives. Not only the dethronement of sin in our lives, but the enthronement of God in our lives. Holiness is not just a theological concept. Holiness is a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ indwelling us initially and continually. Christ is the pattern, the sample, the exemplary cause of our sanctification, writes a great theologian. Holiness is the very copy or transcript of the holiness that is in the Lord Jesus. As the wax has line for line from the seal as the child has limb for limb, feature for feature from the Father, so is holiness in us from Christ. And I want to say, my dear friend, the scriptures never leave a vacuum in your life. We live in a day when we have rationalized away sin and glamorized lust, and we call the most filthy things that were ever born in hell, things that are rooted in Sodom and Gomorrah and in every other kind of immorality and impurity, we call those things as the convention of the day. But the scripture says, cut it out. But it doesn't leave us there. The scripture goes right on to say, what you cut out, replaced by a holy life, the life of the Lord Jesus. His life in us. So the promotion of holiness comes not only through yieldedness, but through fearfulness. Will you notice that in the text? If that word holiness carries the idea of yielding to the indwelling Christ, the Christ who came into my life initially when I was first converted, the Christ who now rules in my life unrivaled 
as sovereign and king. And I yield to him. I yield to him moment by moment. That's one aspect of the secret. But there's something more than that. Not only are we to yield to him, but there's something else. Notice this. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Holiness comes not only through yieldedness, but also through fearfulness. Fearfulness in the fear of God. Now I want to hold that for a moment. What does it mean in the fear of God? This fear is not a base fear. It's not a servile fear, but rather a reverential awe, which is always characteristic of instructed Christians. Again and again we come across this. You remember having described the wonderful movement of the Savior in going to the cross and fulfilling total obedience. Paul goes right on to say, just as the Savior went to the cross, even the death of the cross in obedience, and God highly exalted him. So he said, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. Paul has already referred to the fear of the Lord in this very passage. In chapter 5 and verse 10, we read of the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul adds immediately, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He's talking about fear. Now commenting on this verse, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan says, and I love this, the whole way of defining the fear of the Lord is that I used to be afraid that God would hurt me. Now the fear is or should be that I should hurt him, that I should grieve him, that I should cause sorrow to the spirit. I want to read that again. Listen to it carefully. G. Campbell Morgan commenting on this verse says, the whole way of defining the fear of the Lord is that I used to be afraid that God would hurt me. Now the fear is or should be that I should hurt him, that I should grieve him, that I should cause him sorrow. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. God has called us to a life of holiness and anything less than that grieves him to his heart. Therefore, with a happy yieldedness on the one side and a healthy fearfulness on the other side, we should perfect holiness day by day until our journey is done. Now, what a subject is this doctrine of separation. We've considered the divine motivations. We've considered the divine prohibitions. We've considered the divine compensations. And now the final divine regulations. What's left for us? But simply to obey. Simply to obey. To perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. How? First of all, by the purgation of all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. And then, by a yieldedness to the indwelling Christ and the outworking of his life in us in total obedience in that awesomeness, that fearfulness that hates to grieve him. And wherever and whenever I sense that the Spirit of God is grieved in my soul, at that moment I pause in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a prayer, in the middle of activity, and put it right. I want to say to young people here, and older ones too, your life should be as sensitive to sin as the eye is to a foreign body. I walk down the streets of New York today and a gust of wind blows the dust into my eyes. And that speck of dust in my eye causes me irritation and I can't proceed until that foreign body is extricated and the eye is flushed and I can see afresh. 
I'm not comfortable. I don't want to go any further until this is dealt with. So should be the life of the Christian. Your life and my life should be as sensitive to sin as the eye is to a foreign body. After all, we're indwelt by the very life of Christ through the Holy Ghost, and the Spirit of God is a very sensitive person. And the moment sin touches the life, he's grieved in me, and my spirit ought to echo with his spirit that there's a grief in the life. And at that moment, there should be a halt. At that moment, there should be a confession. At that moment, there should be a cleansing of anything that has soiled or spoiled my life whether it's the filthiness of the flesh or the filthiness of the spirit. That, my friend, is the life of holiness. That, my friend, is the life of separation. That is the life that merits the fellowship of God. That's the life that merits the fatherhood of God. That's the life that brings the power of God, the promise of God, the provision of God, the protection of God upon your life in all its fullness and blessing. Holiness. Holiness unto the Lord. I came across these words with which we conclude this morning. I don't know when I've been so moved by a statement from the pen of a great saint. Someone has said there is a moral omnipotence in holiness. Argument may be resisted. Persuasion and entreaty may be scorned. The thrilling appeals and exhortations of the pulpit set forth with all vigor and logic and all the glow of eloquence may be evaded or disregarded. But the exhibition of a life of holiness has a might which nothing can withstand. It is truth embodied. It is the gospel burning in the heart, beaming from the eyes, breathing from the lips. No sophistry can elude it. No conscience can ward it off. No bosom wears a mail that can brave the energy of its attack. It speaks in all languages, in all climes to all phases of our nature. Holiness is universal, invincible, and clad in immortal armor. Goes on from victory to victory. So God says to us this morning, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. Oh, to be holy, this is my plea. Cleanse from all evil, that all may see Jesus, my master, living in me, showing his glory continually. Hear then my prayer, Lord, fulfill my need, and make me holy in word and deed. Cause me to labor where thou dost lead, filled with thy spirit sowing the seed. So shall I see, Lord, thy blessed face in realms of glory where there's a place for every runner in heaven's race, saved by God's mercy, kept by his grace. Oh, make me holy. This is my plea. Let us pray. Just a quiet moment in God's presence. Beloved friends, in an hour when our country is characterized by crime, corruption, and confusion, in an hour when one tremendous term could be written across our land, degeneracy, I want to tell you that a message like this is not popular. I want to tell you that a message like this is not palatable. But I want to tell you from the depths of my heart that this is God's word, God's absolute rule for living. And thank God he's never made a demand without the dynamic. 
He's never made a command without the divine enabling. And there isn't a fellow or a girl here whose life has been defiled and defeated and broken that cannot become holy. There isn't a man or a woman in this place living an unholy life, an unequal yoke, living amidst contamination that cannot be restored and reclaimed. And in these closing moments in this sanctuary and wherever this message is being heard, I'm asking you to kneel before the cross and claim that cleansing blood which purgates and purifies. Lay hold of the life of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to indwell you and release itself through you. And with a purgation of filthiness, start to promote holiness by yieldedness, by fearfulness in the presence of God. Yieldedness because you want him to take over your life. Fearfulness because you don't want to hurt him again. You don't want to grieve him again. Will you pray then from the depths of your heart, O, oh, to be holy? This is my plea. Cleansed from all evil that all may see, Jesus, my master, living in me, showing his glory continually. Lord, answer the response of hearts in this audience and across Radio Land and seal for thy glory the preaching of thy truth this morning. We ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.